Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. Ahead of Iran's presidential elections later this month, we look at why so many Iranians are planning not to vote. The majority did not intend to vote regardless of who was allowed to run. And then, how light pollution is ruining the romantic mood for fireflies. Light pollution has caught so many animals unawares. I'm Gemma Ware in London. And I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. It seems like a lifetime ago now, but in November 2019, just a few months before the pandemic, a wave of protests began in Iran. Gas rationing and price hikes are angering people in Iran, where U.S. sanctions are putting the country's economy at risk. People took to the streets to protest a hike in the price of gas and rationing schemes. The backdrop was a crippling economic crisis caused by the re-imposition of U.S. sanctions after Donald Trump's administration withdrew from the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. The government's response to these protests was brutal. A very brutal crackdown happening from security forces. There are videos of security forces directly shooting at protesters, severely beating protesters. Reuters has reported that an estimated 1,500 people were killed by security forces in the crackdown that followed. Then, Iran became an early epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic. It's recorded more deaths than anywhere in the region, and total infections are still rising. The country was hit by a number of waves, including in November 2020 and March of this year. By early June, 81,000 people had died from COVID-19. Now Iranians have a chance to vote in a presidential election, and there will be a new president. Hassan Rouhani, president since 2013, is standing down after two terms in power. It's a critical moment for the region, and also for the prospects of a renewed nuclear deal with the Biden administration that potentially could result in easing of sanctions. We're focusing here on what Iranians are thinking about the choice before them. Now, Iran is a repressive, theocratic regime. Getting information about how people view their society and its political leaders is notoriously difficult. People can be scared to answer freely, particularly if they're called up on the phone by a government-backed pollster. But I've been talking to two academics who've been taking a different approach, anonymous online surveys, and they're getting tens of thousands of people to participate. I'll let the two of them introduce themselves before we jump in. Hi, I'm Puyan Tamimi Arab. I'm an uh, assistant professor of religious studies at Utrecht University. Uh, I'm Amar Maliki, and I'm assistant professor of comparative politics at uh, Tilburg University. Amar is an expert in Iranian politics and researches public attitudes in closed societies. Puyan works on secularization and the processes through which it happens. They're both involved in the Group for Analyzing and Measuring Attitudes in Iran, or GAMAN. It's an independent non-profit research foundation based in the Netherlands that studies the attitudes of Iranians on various social and political issues. Amar is Gaman's director and Puyan its secretary. I called them up to find out more about some of the recent surveys that Gaman's been doing of public opinion in Iran. But first, I asked Amar to describe the situation a few weeks out from the election. If I want to say in one sentence that what's the situation, I can say disastrous situation where Iranians leave now. A struggling economy rising inflation, and now the Iranian currency is losing value. 
fast because of the corruption, bad management and the sanctions. Uh, they are all affecting the life of people. And on the other hand, COVID also, the Iranian regime did one of the worst, in fact, among other countries in dealing and in controlling COVID. And they were not transparent about the numbers of cases. They didn't even accept to import vaccines. The Supreme Leader said that we will not buy, let's say, Western vaccine from the United States and the British one. And so people are very angry. Normally, when we define it in the in political system, a failed state, we define it as a state that cannot provide the very minimum requirements of life. Maybe some people think that uh, when you talk about failed states, just Syria is a failed state. But based on that, it seems that Islamic regime in Iran is somehow similar to a failed state in different aspects. How does the presidential election system work? How are the candidates chosen in Iran? Yeah, first of all, I should say that we don't have election in Iran. What we have is a kind of voting uh, ceremony. You have some candidates and all those candidates should be somehow first confirmed with a council. They call it guardian council. And that guardian council, the members are appointed by the supreme leader. And so in that way, you can see that those who can be a final candidate and who are qualified should be somehow completely be in line with the supreme leader and those uh, guardian council. And that's a strange also, more uh, ridiculous, that sometimes you can see some important officials of Islamic regime also would be disqualified for running the presidency. This year, we know that, for instance, the former spokesman of the parliament of Iran, Ali Larijani, uh, who is from a family very all connected to the Islamic regime, he was disqualified by the Guardian Council. And so it's not even a kind of real competition this time. So Iranians are going to vote on the 18th. Who will be on the list of people they can vote for? Yeah, after, in fact, the final list published by the Guardian Council, we had seven people. And the most famous one is Ibrahim Raisi, who is now the head of judiciary system uh, in the 80s. Uh, in fact, he was the responsible for executions of thousands of prisoners in Iran. And uh, others are not really famous. One of them is Abdul Reza Hemmati. And now he's the chief of the central bank. Uh, there are all, also some other guys like Mohsen Rezaei, who is famous that he would be candidate for all elections always. Uh, there are other people, Mohsen Mehradizadeh, who was one of the deputy of uh, Mohammad Khatami. And uh, Mr. Zakani and Mr. Ghazizadeh Hashemi, who was the member of parliament some years ago, and Saeed Jali, he was a conservative uh, responsible for uh, starting a nuclear negotiation before uh, Rouhani. So outside Iran, the candidates are often presented as reformists versus the principalists. What does that mean? And is that an accurate representation? You know that the move of reforming the Islamic Republic started 24 years ago. In 1997, uh, people for the first time decided to vote in election and they voted for Khatami in that time, the leader of reformists. 54-year-old Mohammad Khatami's crushing defeat of his hardline opponent followed campaign promises of more personal freedoms, human rights and greater democracy. In the hope of having a kind of reform in the uh, Islamic regime. And so in 1997, this notion of reform is somehow appeared in the, in the political uh, dictionary of Iranians. And then after that, we have two groups. They call it reformists and principalists, or sometimes they call it reformists and conservatives in that time. 
In fact, these two groups, we should consider that both of them were in power from the first day of Islamic Republic. So they just changed the name, those who uh, named reformists. In fact, they were very hardliner at the beginning of the revolution. But later on, they became reformists. Riviat can add that the image of reform suggests that there's a kind of dualism between reformists and conservatives, and that this dualism eventually leads to greater justice in some way. But the reality is that since the Islamic revolution, suicide rates have gone up, uh, homicide within families has gone up, drug abuse has increased, and so on. So it's not a linear progress, despite the achievements like internet penetration and people becoming more educated. It doesn't mean that people's lives have qualitatively improved. And those factors can explain why there's such a massive political disappointment in this system. So one of the things that people very often kind of assume is that it's just a matter, you know, of economy. But that's very simplistic because besides the economy, I think there's also a genuine aspiration towards freedom, which is very important, not just for rich people, but also for poor people. Okay, let's turn now to your research and the surveys that you've been doing as as part of your work with Gaman. So you've done four surveys in the past few years, one in April 2019 on Iranians' views of the concept of the Islamic Republic, a second one in June 2020 on their views of religion. And then you've done two more so far this year, one in February on social media use. And then very recently, just a few weeks ago in, in, in late May, on people's voting intentions ahead of the elections. How do you go about doing your surveys? What we did is that we tried to uh, use online tools and specifically social media. Fortunately, we have a very perfect penetration of internet in Iran. The most recent report mentioned that it's almost 100% internet penetration on mobile phones. And on the other hand, we know that more than 75% of Iranians, adults, use social media, one of WhatsApp, Telegram, uh, Instagram, or Twitter. So in that way, we try to use this uh, social media using a method, we call it multiple chain referral sampling, in which you try to uh, approach people from different channels. Sometimes we use more than 100 channels in different platforms like Instagram, Telegram, and uh, WhatsApp to reach different groups of society and ask them questions about those sensitive issues. On the other hand, also, we try to replicate uh, the results of non-sensitive questions from famous uh, survey uh, agencies like World Value Surveys to somehow validate our findings. Yeah, and it's also important to consider that when Ammar mentioned that we use digital channels to spread the survey, it doesn't mean that we just advertise there. It means that those channels themselves advertise our survey. This includes very conservative channels. um, And then we use official statistics to weight the data. So, you know, how many people live in which province and so on. Uh, How many men, how many women. Okay, so you've reached a wide variety of people from across the political spectrum in Iran. What have you found out? What is your most recent survey telling you about how many people intend to vote? Uh, Based on our survey, we understood that about uh, 75% of eligible voters don't want to vote. We know that in general, we have the supporter of the Islamic Republic, which are about 20 to 25%. And normally they vote because they think that it is a kind of support of the, the system in general. I should mention that when you see the other formal surveys done by 
conventional method like phone surveys. Even those surveys show that uh, we will have a very big drop in the turnout this year. And how does that compare to how many people voted in the previous presidential election? Yeah, it was 73% in the former election uh, when Rouhani uh, elected for the first time and for the second time in 2017. So 73% in the last presidential elections. And now we're looking at about 25%. So what is affecting that turnout? It's a huge drop. Why? Yeah, because if you just follow the political uh, issues in Iran, immediately after the former presidential election in Iran, which was in June 2017, in six months, we had a very big movement that they called that I regret. It was in Twitter, the kind of hashtag that I regret. And it was about the regret of voting to Rohan. It was just before the first wave of nationwide protests in December that year, December 2017. Last night, protesters threw stones at the municipality in the town of Shine Shah one of dozens of demonstrations across Iran. And again after that, we have in November 2019, that's another, again, nationwide protest in which at least, according to Reuters, more than 1,500 people were killed. And again, connected to that, having sanctions, no changes in the economic situation of the country, and also just attacking of that uh, airplane in Iran. Iran initially denied having shot that plane down. Leaders now say that a missile fired by mistake brought down the Ukrainian passenger jet. These are all things that uh, make people angry. And also they understood that they voted for a person to have a better life or to have a better situation. And they understood that it uh, didn't work. And even those who they voted for supported the crackdown in Iran. We know that the intelligence service of Rouhani's administration, Rouhani himself, and also reformist himself, all somehow support the crackdown in 2017 and the crackdown in 2019. An almost complete internet blackout, making it nearly impossible for protesters to use social media to share images or information about the bloody crackdown. It's not to say no to the conservative candidates or reformist candidate. It's a kind of what in a campaign in Iran nowadays they call it no to the Islamic Republic. Piyan, so do your results show that the crackdown on the protests in 2019 was actually a turning point? Before this event, we measured what people think about the very nature of the Islamic Republic. And after the event, we had similar results. But what has changed is the way that people are going to use the elections. Because in the past, the elections have functioned as a kind of, you know, Ammar said, a a theater, a ceremony. But a theater is also a stage where people can demonstrate their presence, right? Saying, look, we are here. You have to do also something for us. Now that power is being shifted to not participating in the election. So in a way, it's not a different kind of power of the people. It's just that the focus uh, has changed. And of course, the events shutting down the internet, killing people, and then the airplane exacerbate those tensions. And what about the candidates? Does who's on the ballot paper actually have an impact on who's going to turn out to vote? Our most recent survey shows that the majority did not intend to vote regardless of who was allowed to run. So it's not because some reformists are not allowed to run that people don't want to participate. That decision was made actually far earlier after seeing the collapse of the deal 
with the sanctions continuing to exert pressure. And, of course, with the events uh, of people getting killed and the internet shut down in November 2019. This is very important because I see in Western media that there's this narrative that, oh, if only the reformists could participate, you know, then everything would somehow be different. But that's not really in line with what people are telling us. And can your survey results drill down to see who are the kind of people who are more likely to not vote? Yeah, one thing that's very interesting about this time is that Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was also disqualified. The hardline Guardian Council chose just seven candidates out of almost 600 who had registered. Which is, in a way, it's hilarious, right? So because he was the so-called winner of the disputed elections in 2009, now he's disqualified and going on television saying, this is not fair. <laughs> uh, but... That means that even part of the, you know, conservatives or maybe followers of a kind of populist leader, even they are disenchanted. And that is something I would say really new. So it means that the people who do participate are going to belong to the, you know, the real hardcore, uh, excluding even other regime supporters. Okay. You mentioned a couple of the candidates of these seven candidates before, Amar. So who's the most popular of them from your survey amongst the people who said they would vote? Yeah, as I mentioned, that the most prominent candidate now in the list is the head of judiciary system, who is Ibrahim Raisi, and who can get the vote of the whole, let's say, conservative base, social base in Iran, which is about 15%. So he is now seen as the winner. And on the other hand, we know that there are also some uh, rumors about that he will be the next supreme leader. And so in that way, they think that maybe it's also connected that they want to have him on the stage to introduce him as a person who has the vote and popularity in Iran. Although with a very low turnout, I think it's uh, kind of maybe can be a failed uh, attempt. So let's move on to find out more about what you have learned about how Iranians view their own society. So what do your surveys reveal about people's views of the Islamic Republic, for example. If we take all the surveys together, we see that the political disenchantment has turned into a disenchantment in the way that people see themselves, who they want to be. And religion, of course, in a theocracy, plays a very important role in the sense that the political theocracy has led to massive secularization. This is the miracle of the Islamic Republic, right? Secularization to this extent would never have been possible uh, under a secular regime, actually. And our survey shows that people do not want the strong establishment of religion in the state. Um, but then the question is, what do they want? And we designed our questions to get a kind of impression. Would they be more in favor of a French-style republic? You know, very strong laïcité. Or would they be more in favor of a more moderate constitutional monarchy, like in the Netherlands? Or do they prefer the American system, which has a strong mutual exclusion of religion and the state, where religions enjoy a high level of autonomy? And, you know, the results are diverse. So you say there's a diversity of view. So drill down there for me. What, what did you actually find? 31% said that we prefer to have secular republic. 
16% thought that constitutional monarchy is a good option for them. And 22% are supporters of the Islamic Republic, which confirmed our former surveys in which we understood that between 20 to 25% of people support the Islamic Republic. Interestingly, 30% said that we have no enough knowledge to say that which political regime is better for Iran, which is also a good indicator that people don't just randomly answer. They understand that it's a really hard question for them. Mm. Because your surveys have actually really highlighted a real disparity between what official data tells us about how religious people are in Iran and what people responded to in your survey. Can you explain what you found there? Yeah, yeah. So first of all, I mean, the official data is so ridiculous, right? The state says that something like you know, 99% of the country would identify as Islamic, which is in the sociology of religion is an absurd. No such thing exists in any country. So in that sense, our first aim was to kind of open up that Pandora's box to show that, no, it's actually much more complicated, much more diverse. And yes, there has been also a secularization process. So what did you actually find? We found that about a third of our respondents explicitly identify with Shiism and uh, several percent uh, with other forms of Islam, Sunni form, or uh, they describe themselves as Sufi. And we found that, on the other hand, there is a growing Christian community, about 1%, uh, people converting to Christianity. There are people who identify with Zoroastrianism, which we take to be a kind of also a form of nationalism in a way, a form of saying no to the Islamic Republic rather than strict adherence to that uh, ancient faith. And we found that all these secularized people, they're not just identifying as atheists, they identified as nothing. And what's interesting is that when you ask these same people, did they grow up in a religious family? Over 90% say that they grew up in a believing and or practicing family. So you see that the secularization process has not been gradual. Something happens, this huge rupture of the Islamic revolution and the war after that, that sets in motion a massive transformation. And this is in line with larger studies of secularization. Um, And you see this in external data. So we took the real data of uh, baby names, and you see that after the year 2000, so after the post-revolutionary generation starts to have children. Names like Muhammad, Ali, Hussein, Fatima, Zahra, names that are important for Shia Islam are, you know, declining. Just to tie it all back together, really. So, Puyan, you've explained this growing secularization and this real change that your surveys have revealed. How does that link with the apathy in this election? Yeah, I think one thing that I find interesting and that, uh, unfortunately, academics have not been writing much about, are the memes that people send to each other uh, using social media. If you look at family WhatsApp groups, Telegram channels, and look at what kind of memes people send to each other, they very often are critical of religion, right? And this criticism of religion is connected to a criticism of uh, the political system. And this sentiment is something that we also see in the results. When, for example, the supreme leader says that voting is a religious duty, 
So when people say that they don't want to vote, it's not just a political statement, but it's also in a way connected to their religiosity. It's also saying no to religion in a way. And these things become very much entangled and conflated. Amma, what, what do you think this low turnout that you're predicting and, and the other surveys are predicting will mean? What kind of message does it send? Uh, yeah, I think that this is the first time after, as I mentioned, 20 four years, that the absolute majority of Iranians wants to say something. But I think that it's very important message to the world, that they want to say this no to the Islamic regime with this kind of abstention. Because you know that for all these years, they just voted to kind of, they call it also sometimes protest voting, to reject the main candidate of the supreme leader or the candidate of conservatives to have a better life. But this time they want to give a kind of different kind of no. And Puyan, finally, what will Iranians do if Raisi is elected and, and they didn't vote for him? Will there be protests? Well, actually, the facts are that the people who are going to vote are going to probably massively vote for Raisi. So I don't think that's a comparable situation with, let's say, the cheating that happened in 2009. Any kind of commentator should be careful uh, with predictions. But uh, we've seen over the past 15 years that different layers of society have protested but also that the state is willing and capable to use fatal force. And that has thus far been successful in uh, eliminating uh, those protests and uh, preventing them from surging even more. We don't know what will happen when uh, someone new takes office and so on. So I, I would be very careful with, with making bold uh, predictions. predictions. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for your time and for explaining your your results and your fascinating um, research. So thank you. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to read more about Puyan and Amar's research, you can find a link in the show notes to the articles that they've written for the conversation, including one with some graphs explaining more about their findings from their latest study. We're taking a quick time out here to tell you about another podcast from Pushkin that we think you'll like, Cautionary Tales. Host Tim Harford draws on history and social science to vividly retell the stories of great crimes, accidents and disasters of the past, pointing out valuable lessons for us all from the dithering, death and destruction. You'll ride with the Light Brigade as they charge headlong to certain death, watch the trial of the art forger who fooled the Nazis, and shudder at the deeds of a kindly doctor who was in fact killing his patients. You can binge the entire season of Cautionary Tales right now, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, on to this week's second story, where we head to a hot, humid night and look for fireflies. Fireflies, glow bugs, lightning bugs, whatever you call them, they are super common on the east coast of the U.S. on warm summer nights, lighting up the night with their blinking mating calls. Gemma, have you ever seen a firefly? Do you guys have them in the UK? We do have them, but they're not common, so I haven't seen one in a long time. Well, that might be due to light pollution. All the light leaking from streetlights, car headlamps, people's homes. New research shows that it has a rather sad effect on these bugs. When there's too much light, they don't flash. I'll let Avalon Owens, the researcher who's actually studying this, take it from here. My name is Avalon Owens. I'm a fifth-year PhD student at Tufts University, and I study fireflies and light pollution. 
We actually don't know a lot about fireflies. There's a lot of stories, but as far as firefly research goes, it's kind of a small field, especially compared to like monarchs or, or bees or things like that. How are firefly populations doing, both the ones you study out in near Boston and just generally in the U.S. and potentially globally? Almost every time I hear, oh, well, you know, I used to see fireflies so much when I was younger. Where have they gone? I don't see them anymore. There's also been specific examples in high traffic areas, tourist areas, in places like Thailand and Malaysia, where, you know, they have these sort of places set up where people go to see specific species. And that, and after several years of visiting, that specific population is kind of run into the ground. The question then is, do people not see fireflies because they're not there, because they've gone somewhere else? because people themselves aren't looking very hard. Some might put it down to the invention of air conditioning that people don't tend to sit out on their porches at night as much anymore to like relax after a hot day. You know, that may be true. Even if it's not true, I can very easily imagine and have seen, you know, sitting on a porch with a lot of lights on your porch, it becomes very hard to see fireflies that are right nearby. Nighttime landscape is so lit up that we can't even see them when they're there. Or they might really not be there. So they blink. We all know that. How does that blinking work? Fireflies are pretty unique as far as bioluminescent organisms go in that they make their own light. They don't have any bacteria there to help them. They do it all themselves. And they do it in this special organ. It's called the lantern or the butt, more colloquially, (laughs) which is on their abdomen. And it houses basically uh, what we call a enzymatic reaction. It's essentially a glow stick and there's an enzyme in a substrate and whenever the two come into contact, they there's a little reaction and it produces a photon of light. And the fireflies are able to control when these two things come into contact. So, you know, for us, we break a glow stick, it glows all night. The firefly can break it, unbreak it, and again, and sort of control this light to make whatever kind of magical pattern they want. And usually they have specific patterns for each species that sort of say, this is what I am. I'm here. I'm ready to party. What is this party referring to? Why are fireflies blinking? Uh, I mean, it is cool and beautiful to look at, but there's a reason, right? There is. There's actually several reasons. Fireflies sort of maybe started out using this light as a way of telling predators that they're toxic. They taste terrible, or so I hear. So they started flashing as a way of saying, like, if you eat me, I'm going to taste bad, so you might as well not bother. And then many, many species took this and sort of co-opted it for use in courtship. And so around here, we have flashing fireflies that have this really elaborate way of using light to communicate. So the male fireflies will patrol a given area and flash their specific pattern saying, you know, I'm here. And if maybe their flash is really bright, they'll be especially handsome or something like that. Yeah, like peacocking, right? From the evolutionary sense of the word. Yes, the brighter the flash, the more attractive. And then the females are actually waiting on the ground below. A lot of people aren't ever really looking at them uh, when they go to see fireflies. They're mostly hidden. They're a bit harder to find. But if they see a male flash that they like, they flash back. And the way that they flash back also has a specific timing and pattern to it. And so a flying male, when he sees that, knows, okay, somebody's interested. He swoops down and that's when the magic happens. Okay, so this sounds like a classic example of male versus male mating competition, right? Yeah. Okay, so now can you explain how light pollution is interfering with that? When we think about sort of environmental problems, one of the big ones that comes to mind is probably climate change. 
habitat loss, chemical pollutants, maybe. And almost all of these have analogs in evolutionary time, like the climate has gotten warmer before and animals, you know, they might not like it, but they kind of have strategies to adapt. Whereas for all of evolutionary history, it's been dark at night and light during the day. And signals like the moon and stars are really, really reliable. And that's why so many animals have evolved to use them to sort of figure out what time it is um, and when they need to be where. So light pollution is this totally new thing that we've brought in. It has caught so many animals unawares. And so you end up with these really weird behaviors like birds that crash into lighthouses, moths that fly to candles and burn themselves up. It's a classic example. But then, you know, even more subtle than that is the fact that if you're an animal that's used to using your eyes at night to get around the world and maybe to find a mate, and you introduce this visual pollutant, it can become really hard to see the things that you need to see. And this is especially true for bioluminescent animals because a light shows up really well against darkness and it doesn't show up really well against another light. I think with the advent of LEDs, light pollution has become so pervasive that it is hard to find any truly dark areas. And there's a few studies done in all sorts of parts of the globe that show that if you have a light at night and the male fireflies are sort of floating around uh, advertising themselves with their flashes, uh, the light will make them not flash as much. And so we haven't really known what light does to female fireflies until the study that my co-author and I put out earlier this year. How did you do it? How did you actually study the behavior of female fireflies? We basically took pairs of fireflies, which was no easy task, into the lab and we put them in this little, call it a courtship arena. It's basically two chambers and they're all, they're transparent. And the female's on the bottom and the male's on the top, just like in nature. And then we have a camera off to the side that films them as they talk in the dark. And then on the top, above both of them, we put these lights. And we actually tested a couple colors of lights. If maybe is warm white light better than cool white light as far as how they're able to communicate against it. We also tried different intensities of light to see if a bright light versus a dim light made a difference. All of this, you know, with the aim of finding the best kind of light, you know, a sort of compromise solution that would allow people to have lights and fireflies to still have love. Tell me what you found in that. What we found was, um, as far as the males were concerned, it was pretty much the same as previous studies. You put a light on, they flash about half as much. It's kind of half-hearted. But what really surprised us was the females were way more sensitive. And there were some colors of light. When the light was on, they went totally silent. And when you turn the light off, they started flashing again. It was instantaneous. Could be a lot of reasons for that. It could be that she can't see the male. She's looking up. The light's pointed down. It could be shining right in her eyeballs. Or she might see the male flash and think it's not very handsome because it doesn't look very bright compared to one in darkness. Okay, so if I want to be a firefly conscious citizen, what types of light should I have outside? There's been a lot of focus in recent years on color and, and finding some sort of good color that is, you know, environmentally friendly. But LED technology is really, really, really bright. And the way that animals see light is the kind of, it's based on probability. And so an animal might have a low chance of seeing a red photon. But if you put out a billion of them, they will see them and it will disrupt their behavior. And so you cannot recommend colors in isolation. So my recommendation is to keep it as dim as possible. And you would be surprised 
how well you can see with a couple, you know, just some really soft illumination. So obviously we don't want to share your secret spot, but um, walk me through if I wanted to go on a Firefly adventure, how I could go see some, especially if it's peaking right now. So with semi-natural areas with some water, that's kind of where you're going to find them. And then I do recommend redhead lamps. Those are really common because they also don't mess with your night vision and they're just kind of more comfortable. And you can, um, if you want to, put a couple strips of painter's tape over the light to dim it a little bit um, because redhead lights tend to be really bright. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure hearing about it and you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you so much. Check out the story she wrote about her recent study on theconversation.com. To end this week's episode, we've got some recommended reading from Haley Lewis in Canada about a very distressing recent discovery. Sega, I'm Haley Lewis, culture and society editor at The Conversation based in Ottawa, Canada. News broke in late May when the unmarked remains of 215 Indigenous children were discovered at former Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia. Residential schools were established by the Canadian government in conjunction with churches with the goal to systematically kill the Indian and the child. As an Indigenous woman working in a newsroom, these past few weeks have felt impossible. The pain Indigenous people are feeling right now is insurmountable, but we're strong. It was important to me that our first published story be by an Indigenous author, so we had Veldon Coburn from the University of Ottawa write, No Longer the Disappeared, mourning the 215 children found in graves at Kamloops Indian Residential School. His story addresses how residential schools broke down and sterilized Indigenous lives, removing any trace of the gifts inherited from their parents and ancestors, repackaging them into Canadian bodies. We also had a piece that looks at why many Canadians don't seem to care about the lasting effects of residential schools. This was by Joanna Quinn from the University of Western. She says it's because the failure of deeply divided societies, like Canada, to acknowledge the past. And finally... One from Beverly Jacobs, an Indigenous law professor from the University of Windsor, who calls for an investigation into the discovery of the remains as a crime against humanity, and that all entities involved in residential schools be charged with genocide and tried at the International Criminal Court. Visit the Culture and Society section of The Conversation Canada for more. Goodbye. Haley Lewis there in Ottawa. Thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode and to the conversation editors, Jennifer Weeks, Hayley Lewis, Scott White and Stephen Kahn. And thanks to Alice Mason and Imriel Morgan for our social media promotion. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com or email us podcast at theconversation.com. If you want to learn more about any of the things we talked about on the show today, there are links to further reading in the show notes where you can also sign up for our free daily email. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens and Mao Lucetto. Our theme music is by Nita Sal. I'm Dan Reno. Thanks, everyone, for listening this week. We'll talk to you soon.